Hi all, welcome back to Down to Brown. You might be wondering when you saw the description of today's episode, why we are talking about the carceral system. But honestly, why not is my thought. You know, lately, and this isn't something that is new to this country, but the carceral system has been a controversial topic for a long time in the US. I think especially in the last couple of years, a lot more people are catching up to this, especially folks, you know, when I think about our millennial generation, but either way, the media is paying a lot more attention to it. And it seems to be more and more illuminated how complex this system is, how it's connected to other systems like our education system, our government, our economy, et cetera. But also one thing that I noticed is that while the carceral system tends to be a conversation that especially appears in our communities of color, we rarely ever talk about it in the South Asian community. I mean, think about it, right? Like in our families, usually you talk about the carceral system and folks are like, ooh, let's avoid that. Or it's sort of a no-no. But South Asians are part of the carceral system. And it doesn't just necessarily mean as someone who is incarcerated, but folks that work there, folks that teach there, folks that help counsel these folks. It is something that we have somehow not really talked about. And I have always wondered where in the American experience do we connect with the carceral system, which is also a part of this American experience and um, us being citizens of this country or immigrating to this country? What is that relationship between our community and the carceral system? I took to research this, and honestly, there's not a wealth of knowledge about this, but that doesn't mean that just because it doesn't exist on Google, it doesn't exist, and that's why we're talking to someone today who knows more about it. But Essentially, South Asians have, in essence, been eliminated from this conversation in some ways. Of course, we know that disproportionately, we see more Black and Latinos in the carceral system. And often, these dynamics have been very biased. Um, And at the same time, I think South Asians also do have to think about how we as people of color in this country too, especially after the George Floyd murder, saw the trickiness of how we can sort of find ourselves blending into white society, but also how we do have sister communities of color in our black and Latino communities. And so it's it's really interesting where we are. And I'm not saying this as a, hey, it's a cool problem and I guess one day it'll be solved. But I think it starts with us being able to understand better what this is. South Asians are racially profiled, profiled by law enforcement. There is racial profiling of Muslims. We know that ever since 9-11. The time it takes for cops to come. In fact, there is a... Um, Voices of Youth article that details this a lot from just last year. And she connects it back to the fact that this does happen, but we've also been sort of blessed as a community to generally not have been victims of a corrupt criminal justice system in the United States, the way that it is applicable to African-Americans and Latinos. 
So to me, what that is, is that when we experience this type of perhaps general, right, gross generalization privilege, perhaps it is a good idea to stay tuned, learn more, and understand how we can help our sister communities. And this is where Anila Yadavali comes in. Do you remember how we met, Anila? I do remember how we met. Um, <laughs> we were I just remember we were awkward. We were teens. <laughs> there were a lot of eyebrows involved. <laughs> a, a lot of hair follicles involved. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Completely agree. I think you saw me when I was like peak. Am I growing a mustache? Am I a boy? Am I a girl? It doesn't matter, I guess. So, um, but I remember we met at that family friend party and I was very drawn to you. Um, I remember your sister and I clicked first, but, um, you know, fate would have it. We became best friends and I learned how to long distance relationship with you. Oh yeah. Yes. All those long distance phone calls and having our parents drive us figure out where to meet in the middle. <laughs> yes. When we called home phone numbers and we're like, mom, get off the phone. But I mean, I feel like even then you were clearly very smart, but long-term, I think what really um, caused me to be like, I was just very inspired by you is the fact that you took that and channeled it towards very generous type of work in the sense you went into nonprofit, you did IndyCore um, right after college, you were such a community leader in college in San, San Diego. And um, after IndyCore, you got into math and doing a PhD in math, nonetheless. So I am fascinated by your path. You are constantly in awe, as my dad says, damn idealist, because they make us look bad and greedy. So thank you for being one of those damn idealists. <laughs> And I'm so excited to talk about your current role now, which is um, working at San Quentin and their education system. Um, and so tell us a little bit about what you do with San Quentin. Yeah, so I work at Mount Tamalpais College. Um, they We recently changed our name. It used to be known as the Prison University Project. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're a nonprofit, so we're actually not part of the California Department of Correction System. So we are a program that runs inside of San Quentin. Um, we're on route, we're in the process of becoming an accredited college. And if all of that wow. is successful, we'll become the first and only accredited college that is inside of a prison. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so our faculty, so we, we run totally completely by, um, on volunteer faculty. And mm -hmm. so my role as a staff is that I coordinate, uh, the STEM courses that we offer. Uh, so that means recruiting and training volunteers, um, 
It means, you know, making sure our courses are running smoothly and providing academic support for students who are in our STEM courses. And I think one of my favorite parts of this job is that we have this um, student TA program. And so students who have taken courses can then, you know, kind of give back and TA for the class. Wow. That's one of my favorite parts of the job is, is running that. That's incredible. So everything you've mentioned is like God's work. Like we need this type of work. However, I've never heard you're the first South Asian woman that I'm meeting who has this career path. Um, and I know this isn't, maybe this might not be your end all be all, but right now where you are, what made you gravitate towards this opportunity? Yeah. So I feel like the word gravitated makes it sound like it was really easy, um, <laughs> but it was actually like a really, really stressful and a lot of self-reflection <laughs> to get here. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, as you mentioned, I did a PhD and after my PhD, I did what was known as like a pretty prestigious postdoc at a, at a big major university in the Midwest. Um, and, you know, I did all of this. I took this path with a very like specific dream job in mind, like a university teaching job. Um, and when I went onto the job market, that, that job actually opened up. Um, it was like the job that I went to grad school for. Um, and, and I made it, I interviewed, I made it to the final round, but ended up not getting the job. And you can imagine that that was just really crushing because mm-hmm. um, I felt like I had, you know, everything in my life, I had just centered around my career and work and getting this job. And then to be told like, oh, sorry, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Next. Um, <laughs> it was like, you know, it was just really crushing. Um, and then at the same time, my partner got a professorship in San Francisco, which is where I'm from, or I'm from the Bay Area. And so like, after being so deep, knee deep in like academia, suddenly I'm like on LinkedIn and like networking. Yeah. <laughs> what is that life? <laughs> right. Um, and I, but still I was like, okay, yeah, I can do tech, right? I have this math and data background. I can do tech or like instructional design and stuff, but nothing really felt, it, nothing like felt like that was, you know, matched who I am. Yeah. Stuff. I know it's sometimes a privilege to be able to insist on being able to keep your path. And I'm really glad for you that you were able to make it work because it, it does sound like your values always aligned with this type of focus with, you know, applying your academia and perspective. Um, I also love how you talked about yourself, by the way, I know in the past, like growing up, we would talk about how it's awkward to sell yourself or talk about your accomplishments, but I feel like you did such a beautiful job of striking humility, but also being like, damn right. I got a PhD. And then I did a postdoc at a prestigious university, which you did. Um, and thank God, because now you're the one teaching us math and our systems in society. So very glad to hear that. Um, So then, I mean, your point about gravitating and making it sound easy, totally true. Like that is something that we tend to underestimate to that point about, you know, being able to accurately represent yourself. Um, What ended up helping you kind of fight for the role and be able to be in the role that you are now? Yeah. So like I said, like these tech jobs, like they were great. They were interesting, but it just felt like I had such a different skill set. Like in grad school, I did a lot of outreach. It's kind of one of those unspoken things that falls on women of color in academia to to kind of like, um, like a lot of math departments will organize like summer programs or, or one day like programs for, for the community that the campus is in. And so 
as a woman of color, a lot of the time you're expected to kind of take on that work. But I also really loved it. Um, you know, I like I did a lot of summer camps for kids and um, like mentoring pre-doctoral students. So I knew like I like the thing I like the best is like teaching and this kind of like um, equity in, in math, equity in STEM type of work. And then yeah. one day, like this job popped up on LinkedIn and I was like, this would actually be the dream. Um, yeah. But it's such a long, I was like, oh, this is such a long shot, right? Like, totally. I'm not going to get this job. I'm not qualified for this job. Um, but I applied and, and I made it through, like, I was literally interviewing for the job as I was moving to the Bay Area. So like one of my interviews wow. was like an em our empty apartment in Minneapolis right before our landlord came to do the walkthrough. And I was like interviewing <laughs> with the president of our nonprofit. Um, oh my so God, if you can interview that well, because clearly you got it, right? The role. So if you can do that do it during your walkthrough, like I cannot imagine you when you're just sitting in a quiet room <laughs> normally. So go you. That means you just knew your shit. You know, a lot of the times people are like, oh my gosh, but what about this when they're interviewing? But you're like, you are who you are, you know, your story. So it doesn't matter where you are in a car, in a walkthrough, in the grocery <laughs> store, you know, your story. Um, and clearly you were able to prove like you have really worked for this opportunity with what experiences you've gained. So I'm so happy for you that you're the one in this role now. Um, and so how did your, I mean, this again, like going back to the point of like, we don't know a lot of South Asian folks who get involved in these systems related to the incarcerated people. And so how did like you find yourself when you were talking to relatives or, you know, even your partner, how did they respond to this? Yeah. So I'll also plug that my boss is also a South Asian woman and she's also a badass. Shout out Amazing. to <laughs> <laughs> Um, Yeah. So that the reactions of people though um, ranged from really expected to really, to really like unexpected. So mm -hmm. So um, I'll talk about my parents first. Um, and so I was expecting that both of them would just be like, no, this is why would you do this? Um, but but my dad was actually like not really phased at all. I think he wasn't surprised that I would gravitate towards something like this because um, I think he's always like just seen me as someone who 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 really finds interest in these different learning environments yeah um, and so that was actually really <laughs> unexpected for me um my mom I think had an understandably more like typical yeah. <laughs> reaction and I think for her it was mostly just fear for my safety and mm -hmm. I think that's also understandable because if you don't have any experience with the carceral system, it's then prison is just this abstract thing where you like, you're like, oh, you're just going to be teaching a bunch of murderers or something like that. You know, you have these like biases. Um, but, but I think we, that after the first time I went in, she was like the first one to FaceTime me. And like, since then has been kind of open to learning and understanding like why I find this work um interesting totally I mean I commend your mom too because I think um it's not unique to South Asians I think there's such a misconception about the car carceral system and we don't do a great job of what plugs there are to do a good to do it justice like 
movies or what we see, right? Like, and here it's all very much like I just don't go there. Don't touch that. And I think the, 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 the bummer is when we start to see things in the news or like we start to talk about the system though, we're very under-informed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do feel your mom because I think like typically I would imagine a parent's response might at least start with that, but I appreciate that she was open to kind of see, because I think our parents are learning too. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a bummer because so many South Asians do provide, I feel like it's almost like a, the American carceral system. I don't see a lot of connection um, being struck in our communities between that and them. Um, it's almost like a, that doesn't apply to us. Cause we don't, we don't do stuff like that, but you know, it, it would be naive to think there are like no South Asians affected by this, no South Asians in the carceral system. Um, and so it, it is just a unique situation, I think. And I hope there's more awareness around it, but how, what have you thought about, especially, you know, I have an opinion without even touching the system the way that you have. And so does that resonate with you? The fact like, okay, what is the relationship between South Asians and the carceral system? And how do you see it either bettering or improving? Yeah. So I was actually also really surprised by this. Um, but I see, um, South Asians represented in the carceral system, whether there are students or whether they're the correctional staff or there's doctors and like dietitians and other healthcare professionals in San Quentin. And then there's, of course, the educators. Um, and so, yeah, when I, I will admit like the first time I went in there, um, I was like, I also had these like expectations and stuff. And I was like surprised to see that the person wanding us and stamping us at the gate was actually also a South Asian. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, I feel like I remember just like thinking to myself, like, Oh, a lot of the CEOs are South Asian. I wonder yeah. how, like, you know, how they ended up in this career. Totally. So. I really appreciate you sharing that because I think that's something that we could, like we have been discussing, just have more awareness around that would, I mean, that shocked me that you saw so many South Asians, even in roles in the system, because it's something that we typically, again, just disassociate with, but it's actually more out of our discomfort with it, I think. And that's again, broader to America itself. Like when we do see what we, how we treat and the stigmas we have with returning veterans, folks returning to the outside, it, it is very much a struggle for them. And I think we make it harder by not being supportive, not being understanding, having our own kind of naive stigmas about it. Um, and I just wonder also for South Asians, what that's like when they have to return to the outside and how their families treat them and talk about them, right? And welcome them. Um, so it's food for thought. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about this too, is that like when you have a family member that is incarcerated, it is such a, it can be really difficult, like, like with all the visits and the financial element of it. And then if like we as a society also have this taboo, like, I think it's just all the more isolating. um, If you are a family, a South Asian family who is impacted. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you sharing that because I myself didn't realize how, you know, South Asians, we typically disassociate with 
the incarcerated system, but they would might be working there. They might be a part of it. They might be returning to the outside because of it. And by no means is it an exclusive South Asian issue. I think just in general, societies are very uncomfortable for some reason when folks are returning to the outside or coming back from wars, our vets. Um, it's, it's very unfortunate how we actually don't champion and include them in their healing and transition back. And so one of the things I've been wondering, especially because again, you're closer to this work is what are some of the things that you see to help enable this transition go smoothly and successfully for folks returning to the outside? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, again, um, I'll avoid making general statements, but I think the that having an access to an education while you're in on the inside can have a domino effect. Um, so, you know, our courses are transferable, right? Our students, when they, when they graduate with us, they have an associate of arts degree in their hand and they can then transfer credits. Um, and a lot of our students have gone on to enroll at UCs, um, or at CSUs. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of our students have like particular career paths in mind. Um, or I mean, on the other side of things, like there are students that are, you know, incarcerated for life. Um, and they, a lot of them pursue education because they want to set good examples for their kids. Like one of our students told me, um, that he's taking this math class because he wants to be able to help his 13 year old daughter. And I think, you know, there's so many, yeah. So just having access to, to this like high quality education, I think just automatically opens, um, opens doors. Yeah. Yeah, It sounds like there's a sense of optimism in taking the class too, right? When you return to the outside, you can be there for your daughter. And, um, what a great way to have that, um, relationship with these students. Um, and so bringing it to your classroom and your students, what is, you know, when you look at the program that you're helping design and enforcing with the teachers, what is the goal of this program? What is the problem you're solving for? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I think the goals are really a lot similar to what I just said about, you know, like our students have so many different goals and reasons as to why they, they enroll in this program. Um, but I'll also say that, like, I have always been a really, like, long believer in a free quality education. Um, and a lot of our, like the majority of our students have um, like very specific trauma that can be traced back to the education system or like a very traumatic experience that happened in the classroom. Um, and I think it's it's not really like a big secret that that happens in our, in our classrooms. Um, but it just doesn't feel good to know that like our public school systems fail our students on such a systemic level. And it's, it's literally tears apart families, you know, and um, it tears apart communities as well. Um, And like, I think we're in such a rich country that I feel like there's no excuse not to do better um, in our education system. And so I think that like, because the students in our program, they're just so motivated to learn. Um, They all have really different reasons for pursuing their AA degree. And they also, you know, have a variety of different educational backgrounds as well. Like, like some of our students have been teachers before and, and want to come back to learning themselves. Um, So, so my main goal is to support them in reaching their goals, whatever those may be. Um, And, and 
I'll also just say that like we don't consider ourselves like a rehabilitative program or anything like that. Um, we really see ourselves as providing a quality education to to people that just don't have access to it and haven't had Makes access sense. to it. Yeah, no, I love that. And I'd love to ask you further about what you meant when you said oh, sometimes the trauma starts in the education system. Um, I can understand that and sympathize, but I'd love to like not jump to conclusions on why. So can you elaborate on what those types of situations look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I can give like general examples. Um, so so students who have had learning disabilities that haven't necessarily been addressed in the classroom or worse, have been made fun of in the classroom um, or, or double standards for black and brown students um, versus white students. In, really show up in the classroom. Um, I think, um, you know, curriculum that isn't culturally informed or, you know, yeah, I think a lot of that has to, or I I think the the biggest thing I will say that I hear from our students is just um, teachers not believing in them or teachers just assuming from the start that they're gonna fail. Um, Yeah. Which is a really, I'm glad you brought, highlighted that portion of our childhood and our sort of life cycle, because I think that is when we, you know, you hear the phrase like, stay in school, guys, like there's a reason why, but then also the system doesn't support you to staying, then it's also difficult. So it's sort of like, you know, when we talk about kind of blowing up the whole system, sometimes, you know, some of those extremists, uh, where it's like, you kind of really have to, if it, you know, I'm, I'm joking blowing up, but like reevaluating some of our education system or, and how it's connected to the carceral system. Like, I think that's what we're starting to realize, but we're so nascent in that understanding. Um, I remember I was talking to my taxi driver um, when I landed from New York uh, earlier this summer, and he was such a fascinating man. Um, He was an immigrant from Vietnam and joined school because he wasn't able to, you know, English was a second language. He kept like feeling more and more isolated in the ESL programs that he was in. I think he was getting in, apparently there were a lot of conflicts between people of color too. Um, And so he kept getting picked on. And then eventually, because he kept getting in trouble, they kicked him out. But then when you kick him out, he's like, also, I didn't go join good company. So he did spend time in the carceral system. And he was explaining how like now he's like, figured it he's like you know I'm happy with my taxi I have a son I have a wife like um but it was really rough for me and you know I'm from San Francisco which people typically associate like oh San Francisco it's all dandy um but it's very challenging for people who are failed by the education system uh, anywhere um so I thought that was actually a very good perspective and it, it somehow kind of gives me insight into what you're saying um if that resonates and you probably see more of these cases mm-hmm. yeah for a lot of our students like this may be the first time they've actually like been heard and validated in a classroom. Um, and a lot of them like have a lot of trouble transitioning into a classroom given, given the, the trauma that they've had. Yeah. And for those of us listening who might not be able to always understand, you know, education in a carceral system, like the way that I kind of connected with it was in, um, corporate, like when you're training managers to support their teams, you tell them, your job as a manager is to just help your team do the best work that they can in whatever they want, whether it's at this company or somewhere else and like whatever path, maybe they don't even stay in this industry. 
Um, and that's the role you play. And it's it, and when you look at it that way, simply, it's actually very like servant leadership. You're not there for your secret like pipeline for leaders in the future and who you can <laughs> who can succeed you in the future. Um, it's really just like blessing them on their own path. Um, and to me, that kind of reminded me of like how your, uh, your team is empowering the folks there because you're basically like, we play a part in your life, but helping you get where you want to be. Um, and I really love that. Um, and it's something that I think not a lot of us, I'll speak for myself, maybe no happens. Um, I've driven by St. Quentin so many times and never thought about it. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Sure. Yeah. So what in, in general, like I'm talking a lot about also like things that we don't know. What are some things when you walked in that you started to learn that you were like, wow, people really don't understand this about the carceral system or incarcerated folks? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'll say that my favorite thing has been just how motivated and participatory our students are. Um, I don't know if participatory is a word, but (laughs) I like to use it. (laughs) We'll make it (laughs) Um, and I've taught at universities before, I, like, um, and just, just like the level of energy in the classrooms is, is just like, I, is so foreign to me. I've never been in a classroom where all of the students want to participate and like, I'll be explaining something at the board and then someone will just come and take over <laughs> for me. And I've, I've just never had that level of like excitement um, to be in a classroom. Um, but kind of on the more serious side of things, I think the most misunderstood thing is definitely the human element. Um, I think, um, after going inside, when I hear people like use terms like prisoner, right. To me, you know, that implies like, oh, prisoner is your only identity. Um, but, but incarcerated people are people and like Mm. your parents some of them as I mentioned are teachers their siblings their spouses their artists scientists Mm -hmm. um, engineers you know many of them had really great careers before they were incarcerated or were in school like you know pursuing a degree before they were incarcerated and and as I mentioned a couple times already most of them have goals, they have dreams, and they have dreams for themselves um, when they're um, no longer in prison. And um, I think also like an important thing is like most of them have families who love them and and their families are also impacted by this and and have to endure quite a bit uh, to keep in touch, you know, with an incarcerated family member. And I just think it's like really easy to just identify someone as prisoner um, or just like feel this like disgust or hatred that like just because somebody is in prison, like they deserve it or like they had it coming or something like that. Um, I I feel like I've heard that a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I sometimes feel like that's a double standard because when we make mistakes that don't result in prison, we don't like define ourselves by those mistakes. Um, Uh, Yeah. And then I think I'll also share kind of a controversial take um, is that the prison employees are also human, um, uh, in particular correctional officers, um, and they're humans that have very difficult jobs. And while I don't agree with so much about the prison system, um, a big part of what I do is is interacting with the correctional staff at San Quentin and and many of them want to see our students succeed just as much as we do. I was really 
focused on what you said about identity um, in the sense that typically, you know, when we hear things like, oh, they're um, in the carceral system, but they're also a musician. We're like, wow, how? And the fact that we're even saying also probably highlights the fact that we are mistaking that that is their full identity when something happens to you. And often I imagine it's not something that they look back at and they're like, I'm so glad, no regrets. Like, you know, I'm sure it was a time and there was a reason why it happened. Um, I'm not justifying, you know, when something bad or hurtful happens to someone who doesn't deserve. Um, however, I'm simply painting the picture of when we generalize, we dehumanize the person. And I think your point about, you know, the opposite is humanization of it is so important. This is something that people talk about, even like people are very gung-ho about um, speciesism and like our right to live cannot be limited to the people we decide, um, whether it's animals or how we dehumanize certain people because we've decided. And that can extend to folks who are, you know, returning vets, people who are in the cultural system, people who are of a certain color or religion. Like we tend to, for some reason, think we're God and generalize. Like you would never say to someone like, you're, um, you were raped once. So you're a rape victim. You're like, no, I'm a person with all these things. Like, it's not like, because I'm this and I am an artist, this is so impressive. So I, I say that, I know I'm preaching to the choir with you, but I say that for our conversation's sake for whoever's listening, because I think that's a really valuable insight for us to keep in mind. Um, I just, I also, I listened to this. Um, I watched this documentary, 15 minutes of shame, um, by Monica Lewinsky. And, I thought it was very interesting because uh, it told me a lot about why we even think that we're God in these situations, um, because she basically goes into the science with someone who is an actual scientist um, who talks about the fact that we trigger a part of our brain when we shame someone and see them get justice. We trigger a part that gives you positive, like it lights up. So we get pleasure from punishing people mm -hmm. in that way. And I think that's kind of a bummer too, is that like we're punishing, like we get joy out of that and then dismissing certain people, mm -hmm. um, which says a lot um, about them, how we then support other communities just because like we make a snap judgment. Yeah, I think it's like this mix of what you just said and then kind of like our disconnect with the, in, with the carceral system and just like, you know, these two things combined make it like so easy to like, I don't know, crack weird jokes about prison or like, you know, also say that like in prison, there is a lot of prison politics. Um, and a lot of the prison politics are related to race of people, right? Like for example, people can only hang out with their own race and stuff. And so, you know, building a classroom community that is inclusive just fascinated like I didn't know that people it just sounds very like segregated I don't know yeah like, like okay it, so it when, sounds like everyone just has to hang out with their own people yes and but also no right like that was what I expected going in was that you know there would be all this like prison politics but for the most part in the classroom um people are really good about putting that aside and like for example mm -hmm. like um RTAs want the best for all of their students, right? RTAs are like, like I said, that was like my favorite part about my job, but like our, our students are really comfortable working with the TAs, right? Because it's like someone else in blue is a little less intimidating than like a volunteer coming in from the outside. Um, and, and so like, from what I've seen, I, I, I feel like 
you know, they're kind of all in it together. And I don't know if that's just a math thing because every like hatred of math brings people together. (laughs) 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 Um, But yeah, like, I I don't know. Like, I feel like (laughs) we have a wide age range of people too. Like some, we have some really young folks, but like the me, the median age of our students is like somewhere in the forties or fifties and, and Mm. they're, that's diversity too. And, and so I think we just, um, yeah, yeah, our goal is to just provide an education for as many people as possible and like have a curriculum that, you know, connects with, with folks, regardless of where they're at. That makes sense. It does also sound like though a really big responsibility on the program, because to your point earlier about, uh, a lot of the folks that might be, you know, in the incarcerated system might have experienced trauma in the education system to begin with. And so when they return, it sounds like a heavy responsibility to make sure that the experience is as little, right? Like uh, it doesn't resemble that past. Mm -hmm. Um, But then to your, you know, what you explained before, a lot of the dynamics you explained with, you know, how things can be in the politics of you know, the dynamics of the, you know, I, I want to just say like society, but like, I think it's like actually relevant to outside too, like how we are. Um, you come to work, you put your differences aside, you will talk to HR. If you make a comment when you're outside the office, though, you might be whoever you want to be. And you know, that's up to you. So it's, it sounds very similar to me. Is that something that is safe to say? Like, would you say that people, uh, for folks who don't know what it's like to see the walls of incarcerated um, of a prison, can I say that? Mm-hmm. For those of us who haven't seen the walls of a prison, how much are the dynamics of our society outside similar to the prison? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, again, going back to you know, these are all just a group of humans that are that are incarcerated together. But I will say that. Um, there is just like by the, the nature of being in a, in a, in a correctional facility, um, there is a trust gap and, and, and we, as educators, we have to make sure that we're not reinforcing any trauma that they've had in any traumatic experiences that they've had with education. And that we're actually like that this education is, is of service to them. So on that note of diversity and inclusion, what is it like to be you? walking in to San Quentin. Yeah, I mean, so definitely at the beginning, the first few times, like, or especially when I was deciding whether to accept the job, I my, my biggest fear was like, I'm this younger-ish um, woman of color, with, I'm very small, like, petite frame, um, you know, so I, the thing I was the most worried about was just being taken seriously, um, or like being seen as like, a trusted member of the staff or someone who could get things done. Um, But I think that, you know, the more that I go in and the more that I build up rapport and trust with the students, Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's like the most important part is just constantly, constantly working on building trust and never assuming that like the students trust you, you know, just kind of, you always have to work on that and, and then just make sure, making sure that all of my work is, is student centric. I think, um, has made it a really easy transition. And I will also say um, that 
there are students that have been with our program for a very long number of years. And a lot of them very much helped me transition into this role. Um, and just like the amount of like insight they gave me That's about so their experiences. Yeah. With the program, a lot of the student TAs gave me um, like their vision for the math classes. They're like, I would really like um, a solutions manual for all the math homework and stuff. I think that really helped. And, and, and once I got there, um, you know, it really doesn't feel like once you're there in the education building, it really feels no different than any, any college classroom on the outside. That makes sense. Maybe the students are more engaged actually. Than That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Why is that? Yeah. <laughs> Plus I mean, all the they... <laughs> yeah. Participatory. Yes. <laughs> um, do, does anyone ask you about your PhD? Oh my gosh, I guess this is like the best feeling in the world because um, when you're in academia and you leave, it's very taboo and and there's kind of, not everyone is like this, but a lot of people will just like assume you couldn't make it, you know, you weren't, you, you, your Damn. research wasn't good enough, you couldn't cut <laughs> like it. leaving right? Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but here... I tell people like I did it, like I try not to like say it too much, but they find out, you know, that, oh, like she has a doctorate in math and they think I'm like, you know, walking on water. <laughs> like it's just the amount. Okay, Anila, you probably introduce yourself. I'm Dr. Anila Yanamali. <laughs> No, you can call me doctor. <laughs> they, I feel like they, I, I will tell them like, please do not call me Dr. Yadavali, <laughs> but they will, they are so like interested. Like they ask me like, what's, what's my thesis? What was my thesis on? And I think like, um, you know, I, I just think it's so, it's such a different change of pace for people to like, actually be like, oh, well, wow, you did a math PhD as opposed to, oh, I guess you didn't make it in academia. Yeah. <laughs> so they're helping you feel good about the decision, cheerleading you on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually hearkening back to your academia days, I mean, it sounds like some of the problems that you were solving for were also applicable there in the sense, I remember you were part of a woman in, a women in math um, organization. So can you tell me a little bit also about women supporting women in the math industry, which is highly underrepresented and academia in general can be, you know, one of the, when we did the episode on imposter syndrome, it was the number one industry where people experience the most imposter syndrome, male or female, but it was especially women of color, which check, check, check for you. Right. So like, how, how did you experience that and how, what kind of like women elevating women, um, scenarios did you experience in academia? I have to give a shout out to this program called EDGE. It stands for Enhancing Diversity um, Among Graduate Education. Um, and it's this five-week summer program for women who are entering PhD programs in math. And it's like a truly diverse set of women, right? Like women of color, um, women who have master's degrees, like different ages and stuff. Um, I never participated, like I didn't take the program, but this past summer I taught a MATLAB course for it because um, it was at Minnesota this summer. And it, just like I was in awe the whole, like at the level of community that was fostered among 
the current participants and the alumni and the instructors. And it was like truly this like genuine multi-generational support system. Like I was, you know, there to teach the incoming students, but there were also a lot of like um, women that were further along in their careers that were like helping me and supporting me. And like, they were also getting supported and like, that was like the first time I've seen like a truly supportive community like that. Um, and, and I thought that was just like the perfect way to end my time in Minnesota. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, so I have to give a huge shout out to edge for that, but there are also a bunch of other programs like that, that are popping up. Um, Mm -hmm. so two of my really good friends started a summer camp at UNC Chapel Hill called girls talk math. Um, and it's actually really amazing. The work that they do, they have these, right. They invite rising high. It's a free summer camp, first of all. Um, and they invite rising high schoolers. So ninth through 12th graders come and they'll like, um, explore some math, but then the end product is that they all record a podcast about a woman in math and like a cool, fun math topic. And you can actually download their podcasts on Apple and iTunes. Amazing. We'll have to advertise that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, If you need something to listen to after this. Yes. (laughs) Come down from down to Brown (laughs) with some women who talk math. Um, Have you ever experienced um, any bias? or discrimination as a result of being underrepresented in your academic career? Yeah. So actually, like, I think it took me a long time to realize this just because I did grow up in California and, you know, um, kind of had my head in the clouds a lot as a child. Um, But yeah, when I did get to graduate school, there was like a lot of really jarring moments. Um, So I think when I first realized it, like, I think the first thing was like, when I realized how lonely I was in graduate school, Mm -hmm. like I had never, I was, I've never been someone who has difficulty making or maintaining friends. Um, And I thought, oh, okay, it must just be like a culture shock thing. I'm moving from California to North Carolina. But then I like slowly started realizing that people were like saying these really mean things to me. Um, And I, and I don't think they realized that they were being mean. Like I have this one vivid memory where I was like speaking on a panel for undergraduates who were, who were interested in applying to math graduate school. Um, and, and one of the students asked like, oh, like, how do you guys manage having a social life as a PhD student? Um, and, and then like a white woman who was also on the panel kind of took over and she replied, well, Anila doesn't have a social life, but the rest of us do. It's fine. Um, and, and it was just so jarring because A, like, why was she so comfortable answering for me? And like, B, I think. I grew up in a culture where it was really normal to see your parents hustling and working and and studying on the weekends and evenings. And and that was just normal for me. And like tailgating football games was not (laughs) normal for me. Um, And, and so, and I do remember I did social stuff on the weekends, but I guess, I guess since my social life wasn't really just like going to football games, it didn't really count to this person. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. so sorry. It's That is very much a microaggression that stays with you, right? That you can like easily be like, am I reading into it? And then you dismiss your, like you gaslight your own self, but then you yeah. start to realize like, that is the part I think that's hard is like people who think they have the place to make statements about you or think that they can put you in that position is the part that you're like, microaggression you know like 
Um, so I completely can understand that that was very frustrating and I'm really sorry, but is, you know, when you look at, at the end of the day, like when you want to think about the legacy that you create with the program that you're doing now, um, again, I don't know if this is your plan to like retire in this role, but in the meantime, like what is the impact and legacy that you want to leave in this role? Yeah, I, I think again, it's back to just, um, even prior to this, this role, even when I was like a child, like I always knew that I believed in free quality education. And I think every role, like every step I've taken has been related to that of like providing a good education. And I've always believed in that. And I I think I can attribute that to my South Asian heritage is just understanding like, um, you know, that, that, or just like being such a strong advocate of education. And I think, again, just providing access to education to those that don't have it is is just, that's my number one goal. And, and I think that's the th- thread, everything I've done up till now, I think that's been the common thread. And, and um, at this organization, I think I can really live that out. I ask not to challenge your stance. I agree with you. I'm just curious to, basically dissect it a little bit. Why do you think people are entitled to education? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, to, I I mean, hopefully this isn't a cop-out response, but to me, it just feels like a human right. I think like, um, having the tools to make decisions and, you know, um, to think critically and not, you know, maybe not, you know, be able to be presented information and then be able to like deduce for yourself, like, um, what am I going to do with this information or, or is this information, mm-hmm. you know, what am I, yeah. What am I going to do with this information? I think is like a natural consequence of education. And I think that's like a really important tool to have no matter what you want to do. Right. Whether. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. No, I completely agree. And I I just appreciate you teasing that out more because I think it's something that we, especially when we see um, the privilege that we do have, like to your point about, you know, being sometimes South Asian families, we don't even think about the fact that like, I'm not saying it's justified how they do it, but like this push to get educated and it's really not a choice. And so I never really, I'm lucky that I don't have to think back and be like, how I had to fight for my education, whereas others are doing that fight. So when we expect you should be here, you know, like it's it's really easy to dismiss that for some folks that is part of that journey too. Um, I think that's a lot of how like we can understand privilege. I like, that's like one of the things I think about being South Asian is like, maybe this is the equivalent to when folks who are Caucasian struggle to understand like, I don't get it. I worked hard. I got here. How come this group of people can't do it? You're like, because you never had to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know, sometimes it gives me sympathy, but especially when we see the education gap with women, like we can clearly point out to your, you know, stance on it being a human right. Like when you take it away, the like trajectory of that person's life changes sometimes for the detriment. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just, it's a lack of empowerment that we feel that child who's in mm-hmm. the world. And so I completely agree. And I'm glad um, because it is important for us to realize though, when we talk about everyone is entitled to education, um, and has the right to, it's not just the people we deem worthy. It is everyone. And that includes no matter how you feel about the systems, 
that includes incarcerated folks too. I guess I have my last few questions for you, which is one, when you think about the down to Brown mission, um, how did this role, how did your path in academia help you understand more and more how you can free yourself of some of those stresses of being South Asian and those uh, stigma pressures, but then also of American assimilation and just kind of going with the flow and being a part of that experience too. How did you make sense of that due to your path in your PhD and now at St. Quentin? Yeah, I think that, um, like my particular background, I feel like is very much in line with that question in the sense that like, I did pursue this like very academic STEM higher, (laughs) higher degree, but all the while I was yearning for like something more human oriented and people oriented. Um, and I think for me, I just, a lot of it came with age and like, um, and, and, I think having very supportive parents, like my parents never pushed any career on me and they never like discouraged me or, or tried to, you know, like even when I was really depressed and struggling through graduate school, like, and was considering leaving, they would, they never shamed me for wanting to leave or pushed me to stay in the program. And I think that is definitely like something that really contributed to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll also say like, sometimes the shock factor is really nice. <laughs> um, so like I was recently at this like family friend thing. You're so and, blades like, of glory, by the way, yeah. <laughs> the whole, like it gets the people going. <laughs> it does. Um, I was at this like family friend thing a few weeks ago and like, there was some uncle there that my dad was talking to that I'd never met before. Um, and he's like, oh, you, I was like, he's like, oh, where do you live? And I was like, oh, I just moved to San Rafael. And then he was like, oh, do you work at GE, like the tech company? And then I was just like, no, I work at San Quentin State Prison. And then he was just like totally <laughs> shocked and just didn't know how to respond. And I was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'll like, I myself. Just, exactly. I just like really enjoyed that interaction. <laughs> it must be fun to like deal with the like because I remember even when you texted me like hey I have this potential I'm like uh, you know I I at first I was like are you really um and then I remember learning more about it and I was like wow you can like actually really affect change but it's not usually the first go-to that you're like oh maybe I would share this link for my friend to work at unless they express that interest so um I'm really proud of you for pursuing that path and you continue to awe and keep me inspired. And I'm so humbled by your commitment to doing this work wherever it is, whether it's in IndyCore, whether it's in you know universities, whether it's with the Mount Camel Pay College, it's very, very inspiring. As Anila would not let me forget, we have our trip trip round next. And so, Anila, I'm going to ask you some of those classic questions that put you in a tough spot, and you're going to have to answer quickly. Okay. And I will again refrain from continuing the conversation because this is supposed to be rapid fire. Are you ready? Yes. (laughs) All right. The first person you slow danced with ever in school, I imagine. Oh my gosh, my longtime high school crush. 
<laughs> um, in your opinion, who would you fuck, marry, kill? Candy edition. Good and plenty. Swedish fish. Sour gummy worms. Oh, okay. Kill Swedish fish. Marry good and plenty. Good and I guess that means fuck the sour patch kids. Or sour gummy worm. That sounds like it would sting down there. Um, (laughs) But we won't go into that. Um, When you tell people you're from California, when you lived in North Carolina, Minnesota, what is the thing you love to brag on about California? Ooh, the food for sure. Yes. A plus. Asian food, particularly. I could totally (laughs) see that. Um, The sexiest math pickup line pun thing you can think of. Ooh, pun. Okay. Um, what do baby parabolas drink? Oh my God. <laughs> I don't know. Quadratic formula. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's not dirty though. Oh, it has to be like dirty. a pickup line, but that's cute and funny. We'll keep it adorable. You know, it's the holiday season coming up. Um, and then in your opinion, what is the most embarrassing fashion trend that you have tried? Ooh, that I have tried. Um, I think like anything denim on denim, but just generally anything monochrome. <laughs> oh no, but that's in again. Monochrome is? Yeah. Well, I'll send I'm, you some pictures. Okay. I'm thinking <laughs> yeah. of this like pastel blue baby tee with capri pants. <laughs> well, it sounds like what the kids are wearing these days. So I really can't say that it sounds embarrassing anymore. I'm sorry. I reject that answer. 